do the heavy lifting work. Money for nothing. Good morning and welcome to Friday's Money for Nothing with me, Renita Malhotra-Hora. U.S. stocks rally on the back of the Fed decision. Greece stumbles towards a euro exit as yesterday's Eurozone meeting ends in rancor. And Asian stock futures track the U.S. rally as the dollar fuels commodities. Time is running out. The program expires at the end of the month. There are, of course, parliamentary procedures to consider and therefore very little time remains. Yes, Greek fatigue definitely seems to have hit the masses. That's Eurogroup leader Heren Desselblom speaking at a news conference in Brussels yesterday after the Eurogroup meeting failed to come up with a resolution on Greece. Well, we'll talk more about that with our markets commentator, Sean Darby of Jefferies. And then it's Focus Friday. And today we focus on design and creativity with the Icicle Group's uh, CEO, Bonnie Chan Wu. Tobias Hexter joins us as guest host. Today. Good morning, Tobias. Good morning, Renita. Tobias, is it too late for Greece? Unbelievable. These guys have been able to grab defeat from the jaws of victory. When you are in debt and people are starting to make concessions, you do not throw abuse at them and you do not continuously mention a 70 year uh, past war. Now it's going to get really tough. They're going to be calling this meeting on Monday. If they start to become slightly polite, to become slightly adult, they might have a chance. And otherwise, Varoufakis goes in history as he's great in game theory, but I don't think he progressed past snakes and letters. So if they become slightly polite, is this all about manners? It's Europe. We talk, we talk. And the idea has to be everybody knows that Germany's going to pay. But if you annoy them much enough, they might, if they are politicians, they also have constituencies. If you screw them over too much, they'll just go for it. In the end, we can cope with the Grexit. We're not certain, but be nasty enough and people are going to take the risk. Well, you know, speaking about manners and sort of being polite, uh, yesterday pro-government lawmakers walked out right before the end of the vote. This is here, right here in Hong Kong. Of course, this paved the way for an overwhelming rejection of the government's political reforms. What do you make of that? Yeah, it was interesting. I just heard the comments over the eight o'clock news. Um, Yeah, it must be unfortunate what the pro-Beijing people tried. But in the end, if you play these kind of games, know the rules. Otherwise, you look like an amateur. You do. You do indeed. Well, in Europe, uh, as you said, the Eurozone finance ministers have ended emergency talks without agreeing on how to resolve the financial crisis in Greece. At the meeting in Luxembourg, Athens came under further pressure to accept reforms and avoid a debt default later this month. But the Greek government has refused to consider big cuts to pensions. Now, Greek Finance Minister Yanis Varoufakis did put forth a proposal. Our proposal is very simple. Not one new euro of debt for the Greek state, but a simple swap, a simple transfer of those 27, this liability of 27 billion from the books of the ECB onto the ESM. Technically, that would mean a new loan from the ESM, but not for the Greek government. The Greek government will simply not receive a single penny of it. That 27 billion will be used to purchase the S&P bonds and to retire them. 
But alas, that didn't go anywhere. Eurogroup leader Heron Desselblom says that there's no chance that the Greek government will receive any financial aid before its euro bailout expires. We feel that an agreement must be credible. It has to be credible from the perspective of sustainable finances and economic recovery in Greece. But it also has to need, needs to be credible from a point of view of the credibility of our monetary union and the Eurozone as a whole. We think that is still possible. But if such an agreement is in the coming days uh, put to the Eurogroup, if it were to be reached, we would judge it on that the credibility both for Greece and for the Eurozone as a whole. The European Central Bank plans to hold an emergency session of its governing council on Friday, that's today, to discuss the deteriorating liquidity situation of Greek banks. Euro area leaders will also hold an emergency summit in Brussels on Monday to try and force a settlement on Greece after finance ministers' efforts failed miserably yesterday. <laughs> well, uh, in the U.S., stocks rallied, boosted by Wednesday's Fed statement that rates would probably rise gradually. The Nasdaq powered to a fresh record, easily topping the prior all-time high in a broad rally that withstood signs of the Greek debt default uh, in Pending. The Nasdaq closed up uh, 1.34% at 5,132, more than 25 points above the May 27th record. The Dow Jones closed up 1% at 18,115, while the S&P 500 rose almost 1% to close at 2,121. In Hong Kong, as we said, politicians on both sides of the political reform issue are asking what's next after the government's proposals were voted down in the Legislative Council by an unexpected landslide. Hong Kong shares slipped 0.2% yesterday, tracking losses across the region, despite the fact that the U.S. Federal Reserve said that rates would rise gradually. And Shanghai uh, tumbled on liquidity concerns. Here's what uh, Wells Fargo's advisors, Paul Christopher, has to say. China it really isn't what I would think of as an investment culture. It's more of a culture of building. Uh, and when they need uh, liquidity and they can't pump it into the banks or they're afraid to, they might just let the stock market run for a while. Uh, but that's a, that's a really a poor substitute. They're not really very, they're not really controlling or managing very well. All right, let's bring in our first guest of this morning, Sean Darby, who is a Chief Global Equity Strategist at Jefferies. Good morning, Sean. Good morning. So, Sean, can you give us your take on why we saw a fall in Hong Kong and China stocks yesterday? I think there's two things that's happening. One is that um, the, this, the China market particularly has been dominated by margin financing and sort of the quarter-on-quarter growth in margin financing, I think, is beginning to peak. So that sort of um, rate of change is starting to decelerate. And to some extent, um, I would also add that that's probably the same for, for foreign funds entering China now. There's not the same level of urgency to meet um, MSCI or FTSE requirements in terms of their weighting. So I don't think there's necessarily much buying power now in, in, in China, given the moves that we've had over the last six months. Does that mean we are going to see a slow but sure or very fast end to the rally? I think the I think the likelihood is that it's probably going to just um, be relatively subdued uh, de- 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 
deflating of the of the rally. And the reason for that is that the PBOC's balance sheet is still expanding. So there is a lot of money being introduced into the short end, and some of that uh, is finding its way into the um, into the securities market. And overall, monetary policy is is more likely to be over loosening um, uh, measures over the next six months. So I don't necessarily fear a, a sharp uh, crack in the market, but it's more likely to be one in which uh, we see a soft deflating. Sean, do you think we could see a specific catalyst uh, that could cause things to change, or do you actually think that's already underway? I think the um, process is already underway. I think we've peaked um, almost uh, a week or so after the um, FTSE, or sorry, the MSCI announcement that uh, there would be a delay to China going into the um, uh, emerging market indices. And since then, the markets have traded uh, quite poorly. And I think, uh, you know, margin financing is what we call weak hand money. That is, that it's not likely to stay around very long. And in that respect, I think uh, the markets are probably going to find it very difficult to perform during the summer. Tobias? Yeah, I would fully agree with the latter point. Uh, If you look at the tremendous amount of margin financing and the herd behavior that we've seen on the way up, Uh, To what extent, if there's any hesitance in PBOC just plugging the money, being effectively the greater fool, if there's any hesitance, would you then see a snowball effect of all the margin and last money in trying to rush for the exit? We're still up 100% or so. Well, I think the, um, it's a very good point. I think the likely outcome and the one that we've sort of believed about this whole rally is it has been state engineered and it's been state engineered to, to allow a massive debt-to-equity swap to, to, to occur. And in that sense, I think uh, the ceiling on the shares and possibly one of the reasons why markets, again, will be relatively um, subdued is that you are experiencing a large amount of new issuance and, as I see it, a deleveraging of those balance sheets. So that's another factor that's probably going to mean that the equity share prices are going to be capped for some time. Now, Sean, there is uh, certainly some fear of outflows from China, you know, domestic companies possibly switching from RMB to dollars uh, and then outflows from local firms. What do you think about that? So there has been quite a bit of evidence that the carry trade um, from the U.S. during the um, Bananque period did um, was encouraged to enter China principally through uh, the property sector. And looking at the lending data by some of the through through the HKMA as well, we've seen an enormous um, conduit or recarrying of that by the Hong Kong banks into China as well, which I have to say is also rolling over. So the bottom line really is that, uh, my mind, uh, the very large balance of payments, errors and emissions, which is the balancing item uh, in that quarterly statement, is showing still outflows. And that suggests to me that there's still a lot of the hot money that went in over the last three years that's having to return back to the U.S. or back to the banks overseas. And that's actually causing a a dollar shortage in the system. And that's probably going to persist for some time, making it likely that companies will have to finance in in um, in other currencies. So, Sean, what would you say is the contagion fear of all of this, if, if indeed there is a fear of contagion? Well, I think the, the good news is that uh, the PBOC has finally um, moved away from a very tight policy. Remember, overall monetary conditions, fiscally, currency-wise, 
monetarily in China are as tight as you know anywhere in the world at the moment, probably even more so than Brazil. So there's a lot of ammunition that the authorities can 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 add into the system to, in order to relax conditions. I suspect we won't get that type of contagion effect. What you're seeing is been a very weak le level of growth, and that's because we've, as I said, it's deleveraging the debt and deleveraging growth in the system, and that's going to mean it's going to be very hard for companies to grow out of their debt problems unless they can refinance through the stock market or through some other mechanism. All right, Sean. Um, also, speaking of contagion, uh, the Greece situation, is that going to lead to jitters in world markets these next few days and into early next week? So I think here is the, um, a little bit more um, where I, I've, we've personally changed our view. And I think uh, the events of last weekend has more than likely pointed to the fact that Greece won't be able uh, to meet its debt repayments at the end of this month. Uh, prompting probably a default or at least uh, a serious restructuring. And I think the markets were not prepared for that, um, event, you know, that, that, that event. And I suspect that uh, markets will probably trade quite poorly uh, over the next couple of weeks because it's not something that was in people's um, list uh, for things for this year. And I think there is a the, 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 the spread widening on peripheral bonds in Europe is probably saying that uh, markets may have um, not, not attached the right risk premium to, to Greece's exit. Yeah, yeah, so they were all perhaps counting on the fact that there would be some kind of resolution reached. Do you agree, Tobias? Yeah, I would do, and I would fully agree that only recently, and I find it somewhat ridiculous given that this drama has been dragging on for I don't know how long now, um, only recently do you see the peripheral debt coming up. In a really smart world, if Mr. Varoufakis is really worth his balls, then he's the one who orchestrated his friends or people to start shorting these bonds. Because this is the warning sign that Europe needs to step up. Prior to this, only Greek bonds were weak. And that was a market saying effectively, well, uh, we can cope with it. Now they're sowing a bit of doubt. So I'm really wondering what's going to end up. I still fear that being European, we're going to pay up for the whole thing anyway. Do you agree, Sean? Um Really, I, I, I do agree that markets are underestimated that, and I think it was because of the sort of QE drug that had been introduced by Draghi, which was essentially a nice um, option uh, and moral hazard. But I, I, I suspect the, the um, Mrs. Merkel and, and Germany have perhaps played the card in which uh, they've shown that they can um, impose fiscal austerity and control, control all of the countries in terms of their um, fiscal allegiance. And maybe that the time is right for, for Greece to, to leave. And I think there's that that's now been you know, postulated as probably more than likely outcome. I think it's looking at the credit markets, I think it's about a 50-50 in terms of looking at short-term Greek debt at the moment, about a 50-50 chance. All right, Sean, thank you so much for joining us on Pleasure. Money for Nothing this morning. That is Sean Darby, and he is the Chief Global Equity Strategist at Jefferies. Well, it's time to take a look at the numbers. The Nikkei is up eight-tenths of a percent this morning to 20,149. Australia's ASX 200 up 0.16 percent to 5,531. And Seoul's Kospi also up 0.67% to 
2055. Well, in company news, shares of Fitbit opened 52% above their IPO price yesterday, putting on putting it on track to rank among the top 10 stock market debuts of the year. Here's Bloomberg's Emily Chan. Well, Fitbit is in good shape after raising $732 million in a larger-than-expected IPO. Shares opened at $30.40 apiece, reaching a height of $31.90 apiece, before closing at $29.81 apiece. Fitbit is racing to the top of the health tracking market. It tripled sales last quarter and started turning a profit last year. CEO James Park says the growth is far from over. There's over $200 billion of consumer spend in health and fitness, so it's a huge market, and there's no one-size-fits-all. We have a wide range of products, different price points, different sizes, form factors, battery life, uh, support of different mobile platforms. So we really want to give people multiple ways to enter our ecosystem. Well, we'll be back to talk about creativity and design in Hong Kong. That's right after this. Trees. Remember the first time you drew one or played hide-and-seek under one? We spend many moments under trees, which evoke happy memories. But their growth is affected by the natural cycle and the environment. We have to take proper care of trees and deal with those that are dangerous, so we can live together in harmony with trees. People, trees, harmony. To report problem trees, please call 1823. The time is now 8.20 a.m. And when you think Asia, do you think Hong Kong? And when you think Hong Kong, do you think design and creativity? Bonnie Chan Wu is the CEO of the Icicle Group, and she has just returned from the TDC's Think Asia, Think Hong Kong conference held in Chicago last week. And she's been talking uh, to the U.S. about Hong Kong as a design hub. So let's welcome her to Money for Nothing this morning. Good morning. Morning, Bonnie. Thank you, Renita. Thank you for joining us. So, uh, tell us a little bit more about what you were talking about at Think Asia, Think Hong Kong. Yeah, thank you. Uh, we're actually also in Toronto as well. Um, Hong Kong used to be an uh, important sourcing hub for many brands um, because uh, they could take advantage of the low labor cost in southern China factories and all that. And but in the past decade, things have shifted. Um, brands are looking into Hong Kong more as a gateway to take advantage of the explosive growth of the Chinese consumer market. Um, but more recently, we see that brands are looking into taking advantage of the creative talents uh, in Hong Kong. And in fact, in this city, we have over 200,000 people working in this industry. And Hong Kong is in a very unique position of being able to deliver design thinking, mindset, consultative approach, and uh, original and creative ideas uh, to global brands and help them not only delivering their brands in Hong Kong and in China, but help them for global marketing supply chain. Now, Bonnie, why is that? Why is Hong Kong in this unique position, you know, relative to anywhere else in the world? Uh, Hong Kong has a very well-educated workforce. And uh, in in Asia, we are um, relatively most globally immersed uh, and and we have a very diverse culture. And also because our strong command of um, languages uh, in traditional Chinese, simplified Chinese, Mandarin, and and 
and uh, Cantonese uh, and of course English. It it makes a lot of sense for brands coming out into Asia to find uh, Hong Kong as a hub to to do all those creative uh, work. So of course it has the language capability, the translation, the work ethic, all of those things. Uh, you know, looking from the outside in, many times when foreigners look at Hong Kong, they think of it as very type A, very uh, work ethic is very strong, but creativity, <laughs> perhaps not so. You're laughing, so tell me why. <laughs> I, I think that um, it's an, a misunderstanding. Okay, um, good to hear. Yes, <laughs> and it's changing very fast. Uh, you you see that Hong Kong has actually invested a lot into the creative industry, even in the education sector. We have over 20,000 um, graduates or non-graduates coming into joining the industry every every year. And because of the multicultural uh, background and international uh, population, uh, it does help foster um, creativity in the city in a, in a very different way. And as you can see, we have art fairs and, and uh, a lot of art uh, and, and performing arts um, events uh, uh, that are happening all the time in Hong Kong. It does help uh, with with um, the, cre- uh, the development of the creative industry. Now, your company, the Icicle Group, is a pretty diverse in what it offers. Everything from, you, you say that you driv- deliver brand building solutions, yes. but it covers digital marketing strategy, print strategy, and so much. Tell us a little bit more about it. Right. Uh, well, my company started as a print management company and the positive side of um, being in a so-called dying industry is that um, in in the old days in the glory uh, in, in the days of glory we we were able to accumulate a very impressive portfolio of clients and uh, because of the long-term working relationship we got to understand uh, a lot of other areas that they need help with and uh, brands are increasingly consolidating uh, their way of buying services from creative companies in order to um, to create a more end-to-end um uh, complete experience across media. So it, it makes a lot of sense uh, for companies like us uh, to provide a multimedia uh, offering to brands uh, to help them deliver consistency across different platforms. Why is this just because there are so many choices and they don't know where to go? <laughs> I think um, for uh, efficiency sake, uh, as well as um, brands going Global, they need to grow really fast, and they want to capture this very fast growth uh, in in Asia. They really need to focus on what they are best at. So they they need to focus all their energy in producing the best product, uh, producing an edge uh, that uh, consumers can can understand. So they tend to outsource a lot more of their functions, including the marketing function, and uh, that means they can't work with so many suppliers. They need to find a trusted one and and um, work very closely with the suppliers um, uh, as partners uh, to deliver in, in, one, in one go. Tobias, do you think that if uh, companies here in Hong Kong uh, or China or you know this region of the world focused more on their communications and marketing strategy, this would be reflected in their earnings? I would think so. In the end, everybody talks about they never respond to marketing. But in the end, the reason this multi-billion dollar industry is there, that apparently the truth is different. Uh, What I find interesting, Bonnie, is that uh, who would you see as your competitors? Would that be like your classical, mostly European traditional ad agencies? Uh, They 
could be. Advertising agencies are often often seen as part of the competitive landscape, um, but it's quite different because they are very good at idea generation, but not uh, the not built for marketing execution. So uh, what I'm saying is, uh, brands are ideas continue to be extremely important, but uh, brands are also looking for consistency in production, in execution, um, production of authentic journalistic contents across text and video rather than uh, campaigns and advertising ideas, which agencies are built for. And would you aspire to, when you continue to grow and maybe even further dominate the space over here, would you be aspiring to take over also that creative part? Uh, Absolutely not, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, There are two... um, two uh well uh, two halves of this pie so um they are very good at uh ideation uh strategy uh, market research whereas uh, we are built for efficiencies production and operation um world class operation standards so brands actually need the best of both worlds to actually deliver their brand across media and across geographies but then the cliche still holds a bit that the creative part is being done in Europe and the perfect execution by the A-types in Asia? Uh, well, creative, uh, this word, uh, I, I think, again, is... It can be understood in both ways. Even in execution, it takes a lot of creativity. So ideation obviously has to come from, well, it doesn't have to come from, but it comes from the, the you know, the agencies that you mentioned. Um, but uh, when the master or, or the key visual is developed, the key message is developed, uh, when it has to be executed across media, it takes a lot of creativity too in a different sense. Bonnie, we don't have a whole lot of time left, but quickly to wrap up the segment, can you tell us about some of the biggest trends Uh, that brands and companies must be aware of. And for companies on both sides of the spectrum, the bigger listed ones, as well as the small and emerging companies, what should they absolutely be aware of when they look to market today? Uh, They absolutely have to be aware of the growth of the Gen Y consumers uh, that respond very differently to marketing messages and tactics. Gen Thank Y, define, define that for our listeners. Uh, the younger, uh, well, the under 25s <laughs> that are coming into the market and they are the fastest growing consumer pie. And how do they respond? Oh, they look for purposes. They look for social meaning to products. Um, they might not respond to big, big campaigns, but they want to uh, resonate uh, something in the product and services with their own personality and characters. Those are very different things that uh, brands have been have been pushing or promoting um, um, than in the past. So that that is a, a different approach that uh, brands have to take. Well, it's certainly to- good to hear that they're a socially conscious group. <laughs> Okay, Bonnie, thank you so much for joining us on Money for Nothing this morning. That is Bonnie Chan Wu, and she is the CEO of the Icicle Group. So here we are, Tobias. It's the end of another week. Let's take a quick look at the numbers. And before uh, we wrap up uh, the show, the Nikkei is up six-tenths of a percent now to 20,108. Australia's ASX 200 index is up one18 to 5,587. And Sol's Cosby also up 0.21% to 20,046. Gold is currently worth uh, $1,201.50 per ounce and Brent crude oil at $64.12. So everything is up. Uh, Tobias, tell us why and what we should be looking out for as we head into the weekend. Yeah, it's a cliche, but it's going to be Greece. And the good thing, uh, saying it's a 50-50 chance is... Uh 
a very scientific way of saying nobody knows. And that's exactly what happens. Nobody knows, so rationality could be thrown out of the window. Uh, we'll see on Monday and Tuesday what comes out of this eternal farce. Eternal fast. We certainly will. Tobias, thank you so much for joining us today as guest host. Tobias Hexter is the adjunct associate professor in the Department of Finance at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. Whoa, that's a mouthful. And I'm Renita Malhotrahora, wrapping up for this week's edition of Money for Nothing. And a big thank you, of course, to our producer, Sandra Lam. Let's take a quick look at the weather forecast before we depart. Today uh, will be very, very hot. Uh, mainly fine, apart from a few isolated showers. The temperature right now is 29 degrees Celsius and the relative humidity is 83%. Time for the half-hour news summary with Samantha Butler. Independent lawmaker Paul Jair says it's not too late to make changes to next year's Legislative Council elections. The government has said if its electoral reforms are voted down in the legislature as they were yesterday, it'll put the issue on hold. Pro-government lawmaker Mr Jair told RTHK this morning he wants to reform LegCo's functional constituencies to make them more representative. The excuse that is always put up by the administration is too late to change anything now for the uh, 2016 election. I don't think so, because obviously if we want to change things, we'll always accomplish it. But I think the will has got to be there. I agree that we have to go back to bread and butter issues a bit more. But at the same time, we shouldn't forget about political reform as well. Because after all, if you look at the current impasse between the two sides of the political scenario, it's always the uh, political issues. If we cannot have it dealt with properly mm. or at least sufficiently contained, then I think well, we cannot move forward in regard to any other issues. Democratic Party Chairwoman Emily Lau says she won't allow the government to put the issue of political reform on hold.